Thank you for having me, Ginger. And uh, my name is Raven Chicone, and I'm Dene and Chicano from uh, Arizona, New Mexico. I grew up in Chinle, Arizona. And later on, the family moved to Albuquerque. And I consider myself being from from New Mexico. You know, even though I go back to Chinle a lot, half my family lives there. But uh, but Albuquerque is a place uh, where the energy, I think, you know, aligns with what I, I do. You know, and uh, so I consider Albuquerque my home. And what was your first in introduction to becoming an artist? Was there a moment or a person? Um, you know, I, I, how I got involved in music, most of my work is music. Uh, I consider myself a composer more than an artist and a musician more than an artist. But um, what happened was my sister and I, my sister Nanaba, who's also an artist, we, when the family moved to Albuquerque, we were introduced to this uh, classical pianist uh, named Don Chambers, who is a, uh, a very established uh, pianist back in England and had moved to New Mexico and offered to give me and my sister piano lessons. And um, that gave us some musical training early on. And both she and I, get, you know, we did it for a few years and then stopped and she, she's gone on and uh, got really interested in painting and other kinds of art, and I I decided to learn other instruments because I didn't think the piano was very interesting. So I I wanted to learn guitar and and bass and drums and build my own instruments and I don't know just just make sound you know, and uh, and that's that's what got me into art really was making sound and that's still that's still what I do as my primary work is make make sound and whether that sound attaches itself to a sculpture or a, a video or a performance the the priority is still the sound so um, what is your approach to creating a piece of work uh, you know I before I think it was again it would it would initiate from a idea or a concept of how to use sound uh, but more and more I you know being a musician requires you most, you know, a lot of times to collaborate, you know, you, you might be a musician who plays in a band. Every musician should play with other musicians. And so I think, you know, looking back on my work, it, it's always almost always collaborative. And if it doesn't start off as a collaboration, I try to turn it into a collaboration. And so that becomes part of the process, you know, is, is finding people that you like to make work with and uh, bounce ideas off one another and and then just see where it goes. I think that's the best answer I could give you right now. Um, and where the ideas might initiate in, inside of myself, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. They come from a lot of different sources and sometimes uh, I, I really truly feel like a conduit to something else where, where I'm, I'm putting myself in a situation where I can, can uh, dream up some new idea. But sometimes it doesn't feel like it's something that I've, you know, uh, something I've done to make that come through me I think you just you allow yourself to 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 be in a position to allow it to come through you mm -hmm. it's not to say like you know uh, I think sometimes a, an artist might feel they have to do certain research to learn a tool or or learn information about something or or read up on current events and they're gonna be inspired to make a project like that and that's very possible but um, I don't know if that's the end-all be-all of where that's gonna come from sometimes it feels like like you're just a, a filter for for some idea that's that's floating out there, and maybe that maybe that started with one of your collaborators, or maybe it's it's from the creator or some somewhere. I don't know, but I, I leave myself open to that. You know? mm. So you don't really focus your work on um, engaging on current social issues too much, or uh, trying to engage the audience in a specific way or with a specific context or message? No, that's not true. I, I, I still, <laughs> I'm still very conscious of what's happening. But um, so, so yeah, once, once there might be an idea or once 
once maybe there is a, a inspiration in some kind of uh, current event or current situation, I think I think linking it to something far from it, it could be, uh, you know, a sound coming from a violin, or it could be a uh, bunch of balloons on on the border or something. You know, all of these. Um, I, I don't think I, I think what's interesting when artists uh, the way artists can work is that uh, taking their medium and and finding a way to relate it to something that they're interested in mm. and uh, so in a lot of my work especially with my collective post commodity there is a lot of uh, a lot of response to what's happening in the world and it might not be an immediate current event but it, it's it's surely talking about the state of of the reality we're all living in in the 21st century and, and uh, you know, the indigenous lens that um, we're able to, to uh, cast upon it. If you mind, if you don't mind, um, let's jump into post commodity since you've mentioned that collective. Um, can you talk a little bit about your work with post commodity and maybe who's involved in the collective and what the mission is of the collective? Yeah, the uh, post commodity was founded in 2007 uh, by Cade Twist, who's Cherokee, Stephen Yazi, who's also a fellow Navajo and uh, Nathan Young, who's, who's Delaware and Pawnee, and he's based in Oklahoma. And so those three had started the collective in, in 2007, and I joined up with them in 2009. And each of those artists uh, came from different backgrounds. Stephen Yazi is a painter, an amazing painter, visual artist, Cade Twist also works a lot with different mediums, video, text, you know, uh, a lot of different kinds of work, and Nathan Young is a filmmaker, and so I, they invited me to join them. Uh, they hadn't really done any major works yet, but uh, they approached me as maybe bringing a sound component to, to the works that they were interested in making. And, um, and the reason that they got together was, was again, to, to have an indigenous lens to, to speak about, uh, you know, about the world and about... Um, other other more complex you know issues like the the market that indigenous people find themselves in and this global market and and sometimes that the the microcosm of the art market you know relates to these larger larger markets that are happening and the, the scarcities that are you know thrust upon indigenous people and and people elsewhere in the world you know and and when you start start picking that apart you start realizing you know uh, where indigenous people fit in and in all of these issues such as you know the border issues immigration um, you know environmental scarcities and so that uh, what we do is is speak about these these uh, issues through through multimedia installations mm. um, and so so uh, I joined in 2009. Uh, since then, Stephen Yazi and Nathan Young uh, have left the group, but uh, we've also added on Cristobal Martinez, who's here from, uh, from New Mexico and currently lives in, in Phoenix. And what he brings to the collective is, is expertise in uh, new media and um, comput computational kinds of arts, you know, programming. And um, he's, he has a PhD, which... Uh, the rest of us don't. <laughs> so he's, he's an amazing uh, person to be able to collaborate with. Um, but yeah, we've been we've been making work since, and that's that that that's a big part of the work that I do is uh, lately is is with them. We all do other projects, of course, and uh, you know do other kinds of work. But 
but uh, that's right now we, we uh, finished a major piece called the repellent fence, which I alluded to earlier, which is 26 uh, was giant 26 giant balloons on the U.S. Mexico border, which bisected the the uh, line between the two nations, and uh, that was the largest piece of work we had ever done individually or collectively. Wow. And what was the concept behind that piece, if you want to break it down a little bit? The concept of piece started in a lot of different, from a lot of different ways. I mean, it was, it was to replicate these scare balloons that we had encountered, uh, like in Home Depot, or I think that's where <laughs> Kate ended up buying one. But they, they had this, they were this amazing look to them, these kind of yellow and black and red and blue concentric circles you know looking like this kind of owl eye or something and to us it it spoke to us in this way of, of looking like a indigenous ready-made you know object that was that was uh looked like some kind of native object from the future to me and at the same time had this all this other meaning of of scaring away nature and repelling uh repelling things repelling things that could fly and Maybe they, they work, maybe they don't. You can never tell, you know. And they, they were a very kind of whimsical, absurd object. And we just began flying them as, as guerrilla actions to, as we say, to ward off Western civilization. And uh, the plan was to do this as a guerrilla action to respond to the border. But what, what it eventually became was this line of balloons that sutured two communities together, Douglas, Arizona, and Agua Prieta, Sonora, uh, that have been separated by the border, and, and very much became less a guerrilla action, a, less of a mockery of the fence, and more of a, uh, you know, a community engagement kind of work that, um, that we were able to claim with, with indigenous people and all people of both sides of the border. And when did that, when did that take place? We did that, it was a four-day event. Sometimes our, our, our work takes on a very short duration. So that was four days in October of 2015. So what other type of work do you have going on for post-commodity coming up? Do you have any large plans with them? Or are you focusing back in on your own um, trajectory? Post-commodity has a lot of works coming up. Some of them we can't announce, but they'll be announced in a few days, which we're really excited about. Um, but some major exhibitions that we're involved in. And uh, we just continue to do work. We, um, we, we get together. We all live in, in different cities. Cade lives in Santa Fe, and I'm in Albuquerque, and Cristobal's in Phoenix. But we, we try to get together as much as we can. And if not, we'll, we'll talk on the phone or Skype or whatever. And uh, you just think up ideas, you know, bounce ideas around. And, um, but every, every time we do a piece, it's different. It takes on a different form. You know, if the last one was a land art, you know, presentation, the next one might be a, a opera or something. Or the next one might be a, a more kind of uh, traditional sculptural installation. Mm. Or something might be a video, you know. So that every time it, it, we try to mix it up. Um, but yeah, the, the, the group is uh, on a really good trajectory right now. And, and uh, we, we try to exhibit, you know, wherever we can. We've been uh, pretty active in Canada and the U.S. And um, I think the next steps for us is to, to do more work in Latin America or, or Europe. Mm. And, uh, but it all depends. A lot of our work is site-specific. So we, we very much, you know, think about a place uh, as maybe a first step when we think of a new piece. And are you finding yourself falling in a little bit deeper into the collective work um, ideas versus maintaining your own space as artist? I mean, how do you balance that going back and forth in your mind of what you're doing specifically as Raven and what you're doing for post-commodity? I mean, post-commodity is probably... 30 or 40 percent of what I do a lot of what I also do is I, ha I play in about five or six different bands or musical groups um, most of them based here in New Mexico uh, one of them is a group called Death Convention Singers which is a group that I founded in 2004 uh, which has about 30 members in it all in Albuquerque some some members in Gallup and some in Santa Fe uh, and it's just uh, a rotating cast of, of amazing musicians who, who we think up new pieces to, to perform. So those might be anything from kind of some kind of street performance to uh, an installation in a gallery to uh, 
you know, just some kind of noise performance on stage or in a more, you know, concert type venue, you know, chamber music type venue. There's, it takes on all different kinds of forms. Uh, and I play in a lot of other kinds of noise collaborations uh, with other, other friends. Uh, I'm in one right now with uh, John Dietrich of the band Deerhoof. Called, this project's called Endlings, so we have an album coming out soon. I'm in a thrash metal band with some friends I've grew up with since almost teenagers called Tenderizer. Uh, as a, all kinds of different things going on, <laughs> so, so I just try to find the time to make them all happen, you know. And, uh, and I teach. I teach a, a big part of what I do is teach uh, young uh, uh, on high school age students on, on the reservation and urban native communities. curious about this this approach to sound it seems like you have two paths um, in your sound work experimental noise music and um, more of like a composer of chamber music and where do those meet and do they and and how do you go between those two spaces yeah it's it's funny I um, I, I I've always been interested in experimental music or, or sound or when I say experimental music, I think of music defined as, as beauty aligning with other kinds of beauty. So maybe you have one type of beauty aligning with another type of beauty. Now, that kind of thing occurs in film or dance, you know, and, and I think you might consider all of that music. But uh, music to me is just when you have these instruments aligning in such a way that, that beauty might occur. And if it's a solo instrument, it's occurring with the beauty that's in the room or something, you know, mm. or the beauty that the, is emitting from the audience or the, the beauty of that minute of that day of that year, maybe. But um, so all, whether I'm making noise or I'm, I'm writing a string quartet, all of that is what I'm, I'm working with or what I'm, where I'm finding myself inside of and, and, and I'm just making sound inside of that space. Um, it, and, and I think that when it starts getting interesting is, is all of it almost has, almost all of it has to be a collaboration. Even if I'm performing solo, it becomes, um, some kind of collaboration maybe with the audience or with, um, or if it's, even if it's a recording, you know, you, you're, you're finding ways to, to present it in so many different ways that, that um. I don't know. It's uh, you can, and especially with rec recorded mediums and formats, you know, you have an opportunity to make a cassette tape, you know, by hand or, or put out a record or something. You know, all of that goes into the into the making music for me, and and a lot of times it can become, you know, uh, more than just making sound. It can become a, a group project or become a a handmade visual project. There's mm. there's so many different parts that go into it. Do you have a problem with letting go of control? Because in collaboration, it seems like you have to really rely on other people to complete the idea. I forgot to mention I'm in charge of all these collaborations. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. I mean, that's when it's, that's, that's, it's, it's a huge honor and privilege to be able to collaborate with friends, you know, and, and people you respect and people who, who do different things than you. Who who are better play better than you? I mean, everybody. I, and I'm in a band with 
uh, like the guys in Tenderizer, they're really good guitar players, but they're my good friends, you know. So we we trade instruments on stage. <laughs> we do all this <laughs> stuff, and uh, no, that's how you get good. You you play with different people who are better than you or who are very different than you, and um, and if it's not music, it's it's some other thing, you know, dance or. or spoken word I saw some spoken word artists last night they were totally different when they got together and they did bounce some things off each other and I'm sure they learned something from that experience you know um, but no control is uh, control is just one factor in in some collaborations and some and then you find that oh one person's good at this one person's good at this and post commodity one person might good at be good at the budget one person's you know good at writing emails back or whatever or like <laughs> figuring out the travel all of that stuff you know figuring out the blue making a blueprint making a yeah floor plan whatever you know mocking up things up editing video all this stuff you, you people have different skills and that's that's what what the strength of collectives are mm. and it seems like uh, more and more people that i interview that the back end of art is what's becoming super important for artists who are like independently paving their way and creating what this what this sustained life form is of artist today um, and can you talk about um, maybe share with the listeners your experience with having to like deal with the back end of like writing grants and writing proposals and getting getting denied and getting accepted and how that feels to you yeah it um with post commodity, I learned a lot about that kind of you know admin that that artists have to do you know like writing grants and and um, I don't know uh, figuring out things like budgets and those kinds of uh, those kinds of things that are are not the art making side of it they're more the admin but like, being in a collective does you know afford you an opportunity to to spread those skills around to the other people you're working with but they're um I guess another part of your question is just what are the the dues you have to pay maybe to to doing what you have to do to be a professional artist or musician and mm -hmm. um, my trajectory maybe came a little bit different I mean I I was interested in making sound and I was playing in bands and I was touring and making dubbing my own cassettes and doing all this kind of DIY kind of thing but um, I was so interested in music that I, I felt I should go on to get a, a, a formal education, you know. So I did go and get my bachelor's degree, my master's degree, because I just wanted to learn everything I could about, about sound and music. Uh, so I guess if there's any young artists think, you know, on the fence about that kind of path, I think, I think it is important to go uh, get a formal education uh, in the arts. Now. It can be, I think the times have changed since a lot, a lot of artists of my generation that did go that path and school has become a little bit more expensive or even impossible. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do understand that barrier, but I, there's a lot of great schools. I mean, UNM or ASU, which my colleagues have gone to and which I went to, um, they're all very possible, you know, and accessible. And... Um, and you have to work. You have to apply for scholarships or grants or whatever um, to, to do these other kinds of things. But, uh, I mean, even, even when I was out of grad school, I spent, you know, hundreds of days a year just touring the United States in, in you know, a car with my, my collaborators or bandmates and uh, playing all around the country, hundreds of shows, sometimes to like five people. <laughs> and uh, that's just what you do, you know. And uh, if you're a young person, there's no there's no uh, age requirement to doing that. Just you, maybe you got an uncle who will let you use a truck and go tour around a little <laughs> bit, you know. And that's what you do. And just expect to play to like, yeah, five to ten people, and expect to suck <laughs> for years. How do you deal with rejection? Uh. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's been a while since. I, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I don't know. You, you. It's good to aim high all the time, you know. And um, and you're gonna get turned down for things, and you just you just keep trying. I think, I think, 
what I've told students before is, is you need to position yourself in a lot of different places. Not necessarily to fall back on anything, but I think that's the way to, to for lack of a better word, shapeshift in your career is you can, you might be known as this kind of person who goes and plays noise for five people, or you could go and be the guy who composes string quartets for five people. <laughs> but they're two do- totally different worlds, and, and it, you know, a lot of, I find this with a lot of young indigenous artists is that they have their hands in different pots, you know, they, they, they're a visual artist, a painter, and they're also a, a photographer or something, or they're, um, they're a guitar player, or they're also a, a poet or something, you know, all kinds of, there's so much energy when I, I encounter in the young people that I teach that I think there's, one doesn't need to, to define themselves, and that can, that can extend into bigger things, that can extend into your identity, you know, um, well, it's, well, it's nice to see hundreds of indigenous artists. I, maybe you don't put all those cards out right away and say who you are. You know, maybe you keep it, things a secret. Maybe, maybe people don't know where you are all the time. Maybe you, there's a lot more mystery to who you are, and that's that's a good thing. I think in this day we we broadcast everything, and uh, you know, you have to, there's a there's a very there's a, there's an art to promoting yourself, but then uh, not giving everything away. Mm. And and uh, being fluid, you know. Yeah. You, you, you try to. You know, one should try to look different every time, every day. You know, look one way, <laughs> shave one day, <laughs> kick your hair back another day, be more feminine one day. Do it all, you know. It seems like that's a really interesting point about being indigenous today. Um, is how to not fall into that box of the native artist, especially living in New Mexico. I see that so much where people just, they, they hit a glass ceiling really quickly where, where their art can supersede that. So can you talk about any ideas you have regarding that? Well, um, is it appropriate to say where we are today? Yeah. So we're, we're speaking to you today from the campus of IAI, which uh, is an amazing school and has an amazing purpose. But I, I think it's, it's no secret that the students might feel, simply by being in Santa Fe, that they're steered into more commercial kinds of art. Um, and maybe, maybe some certain experiments might not be encouraged enough. Or maybe, maybe the resources get steered in some other way where you have a, a dome and maybe it's a little much for some students. I don't know. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what uh, the curriculum is for a lot of students, indigenous students today, but I, I do know that sometimes a focus of identity might be all that a student has. So what I would suggest is that a student play with that, that they, that that's not their only card they have in, in their, you know, in their hand. And, uh, and, and if it is, then find ways of, of, of using that maybe to, to not be themselves even. Uh, but uh, but an artist shouldn't shouldn't be able to be pinpointed down and identified and surely not when they're young. Uh, so so I encourage I encourage students or young young artists to to be as fluid as they can uh, in their identity and even in their their non-identities. You know, like just just go hide for a while. I've heard um, a lot of people kind of starting to unfold this idea of non-identity. And, um, and so do you feel like that might be a privilege that indigenous people have to know where they come from, that they can shape shift away from it or out of it? For some, and there's some indigenous people, uh, young people who don't, they're, they're reconnecting with who they are. So I, I can't say that all, all have it or all, all do not have it. Um, but some uh, some students or young people who do have that uh, should feel uh, honored that they do know where they come from, and then in in ways uh, I mean you can remain proud to be who you are forever. But but I think I think an artist's role is to is to escape even their own people sometimes. Mm-hmm. If we if we ever get back to this place that maybe it's imaginary, but this place where we were. Then, then one has to think of what role is that artist going to have in that in that place. You know, you still have to, you still have to be the the weird one in that in that tribe, <laughs> in that in that town, in that community, in that village. 
you know, amongst your peers and your elders and, and uh, your family. That's, that's your job as an artist. You have to, you have to shape shift. You have to, to sneak in those places that nobody is going to want to go. And uh, you have to be able to understand that you're, 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 you might be doing something that's a taboo, but that's what you should decide when you take on to be an artist, you know, take on that, that, uh, that role. And so when you're approached by an institution to present your work, do they have an idea of who Raven Chacon is or what, what they want you to do? And do you have to deconstruct their built identity of who you are and the work you do? Um, how, much, how much do you allow them to persuade your actions as artists? And how much do you kind of um, gear it so that you lead the, the discourse and the conversation? Yeah, I'm hoping, I'm hoping if I get invited to do something, they know a lot about my work. There's been times when I have been and I, I turn down the gig because I, I, you know, and that happens a lot when you, there's like, I don't know, a native showcase of music. There, were, there was a time, 2004 or something, maybe sometime around there when there were some efforts to get all natives in the, in the U.S. Who, who composed chamber music together. And it was about seven of us and we'd put on concerts and it'd be you know seven native composers men and women uh, who are professional composers of chamber music and the music couldn't be more different when you heard that concert and that was in the, the good thing about that was to just get us together knowing what we did uh, we did a couple of those concerts and then they kept wanting to do them and I said no I don't want to I don't want to do this anymore that, that's you know <laughs> why am I being lumped with these people who uh, they, the music is not, not anything that sounds, that sounds like my work. And some of the music I don't like what they do. It's okay, you know. But, you know, I respect these people, but I shouldn't be lumped in with them just because of who I am. Mm. And so um, have, being able to emerge from that, I think uh, I decided that if that one sh if they're going to invite me to do something like likely knows my work already um and at that and is going to is going to be prepared that I'm going to do whatever I uh want at least propose whatever I want and and from there then you it becomes a collaboration with yourself and the curator or the producer of the event or whatever but um if I'm performing live in, anything could happen sonically <laughs> at least you know I'm, I'm, I'm too old to do nude performances or anything anymore. But, <laughs> but you know, anything sonically might happen. And um, let's talk a little bit about um, going back into your installation work. Um, you said that it's mainly focused through music, but you have done some sh kind of straight up object-based work, correct? It's, it's all sound still. It's all sound still. Everything I've done pretty much is sound. There's, um, there are some, some objects I'm interested in making that I have been making for a long time. Uh, I haven't really spoken to anybody about them, but they're these kind of, uh, for lack of a better way of describing them, they're Rube Goldberg machines which produce uh, possible taboos. So those, some of those don't make any sound. And some of the works in post-commodity don't make any sound either. Um, but but every, everything I'm involved in uh, is trying to make music. And again, it, if it's beauty aligning with other beauty, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to make a sound, but it acknowledges time and it acknowledges the alignment of, of things.
what's one of your biggest challenges with teaching? Teaching, the teaching I've been doing for a long time, and the one that I would feel most comfortable talking about is the one that uh, is a project I do called the Native American Composers Apprenticeship Project, which is a project I do on the Navajo and Hopi and Salt River Pima reservations in which I go out to schools out there and have uh, young people, high school age musicians, write compositions for string quartet. So notated, you know, pencil on paper, writing quarter notes and half notes and eighth notes and C sharps and, uh, you know, B flats and uh, writing for professional musicians. And what happens is that uh, a quartet will come to the Grand Canyon and play these students' works every Labor Day weekend. And so I, I've, I've, I've learned so much in teaching these young people. Uh, what, I've, what I've learned is that, uh, obviously, and, and it's no secret, that there's limited arts education on the, in our native communities. Uh, a lot of schools won't have an a arts program. They won't have a, a music program. If they do, there's, there's probably a marching band or something because, you know, sports are more uh, important than music. So they need the marching band to play for the football team or whatever. But uh, at least they have that. There's some amazing uh, communities I'll give a shout out to. Chinle, there's a teacher, Eric Swanson, who's a high school band and uh, music teacher. And uh, there's a school, Montezuma Creek, Utah. Both of these are in the Navajo Nation, and they, uh, they've had long, uh, strong music programs in those communities. And so, you know, the other thing I've learned is that there's no shortage of creative musicians on, you know, in these native communities. If you go to Kienta Monument Valley High School and look down the hallway, you'll see just headstocks of guitars hanging from people's, you know, young, young people's shoulders, male or female. You'll just see everybody in that school plays guitar. Oh, and, uh, but there's, you know, a lot of times there's not a music program in that school. I don't know if they have a music teacher right now, you know. Um, so the purpose of the uh, project, though, is to give these young people the, the knowledge of the tools that are needed to, to collaborate with professional musicians, professional chamber musicians. So teaching them to read notation or write for notation, if, uh, and some of these students don't have that skill before I encounter them. And it's just to have complete respect for these instruments, the violin, you know, the, the cello and the viola. Because I have huge, I don't think those instruments can get any better. And, and you know, I have, I have Native colleagues saying, you know, to hell with those instruments. Those are European instruments. Those instruments can't get any better. Now, on the other hand, I'm not teaching the students to write like Mozart. They can write whatever they want. I don't really, I, I, I have respect for the canon of Western music, but it's completely irrelevant to what might be in these students' heads. So once they learn the tools and what the tools are all about and the skills, they're free to write whatever kind of music they want. And what happens is you see their tribal music emerge, you see their influences, like, I don't know, metal a lot of times, heavy metal, or, you know, hip-hop, all that comes out in the music, you know. And uh, it's this amazing kind of uh, representation of where these young people are coming from in the 21st century. And so, so that excites me, you know, as, as uh, a little bit of an experiment for myself, uh, but also it's at the same time having each of these students be, have a piece that they're proud of and that gets played by a professional quartet, which is something I didn't have until I, w I was like my last year of, of undergrad at UNM. Wow, that's amazing. That's incredible that they have that opportunity and to work with somebody like you who allows them to be free with, um, with the music that they create. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So um, we'll just move into like the last section, which is uh, very um, broad and kind of just like shoot from the hip. Um, do you have a day job? Did you have a day job? And um, what does that mean to you? <laughs> I've had, yeah, I've had a lot of day jobs in the past. Uh, I don't know, 30 plus years. Um, but uh, yeah, there, were, there was a point when, I, when music and art became my full-time job. And uh, I've been fortunate to, to do that. But as I said, there was a lot of 
of dues that were had to be paid. You know, I, I spent a lot of years uh, living in my car and touring and, and, you know, in downtime, staying at different places, different couches or whatever. And, um, and yeah, and then working, yeah, really weird jobs, telemarketing or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, but eventually, you know, that's why I was saying formal education might be something that's very important because when you have those credentials, you can get teaching gigs, you can do other kinds of work that's more relevant to your, your skill set or your art practice. Um, what advice would you give to yourself, the artist you were like 10 years ago? I think I think I would have tried to take more classes and maybe theater. I, you know what? All of us in Post Commodity, we've each said this. We're like, I wish I took a class in lighting just to light a room because light is so important. And it can make you know a sculpture look completely different if you light it a different way. Every student should learn writing. I mean, yeah, should learn writing to write essays and write about your own work. Should learn lighting, how to light a room. And and then there's there's so much technology that's amazing to have right now. So every every young person should know Photoshop, uh, Premiere. I'm not. These aren't plugs. I'm not getting paid by Adobe, but these are all <laughs> <laughs> the kind of. Tools you can find a, a hack, a crack version or whatever, but uh, <laughs> things like that. You know, ed audio editing software, video editing software, photo editing software, uh, and and surely know how to write and and think critically about your own work and and the work of your peers. You don't always have to say what you think of other people's work, but really <laughs> just go and think about it, and don't just go you know, have form an opinion because they're your friend or it's it's a popular artist or think critically about. Uh, all art that you encounter, and not just art. Think critically about the issues that are happening in your community. Think about, think really critically about the link that somebody posted on Facebook uh, that may or may not be true, even if your best trusted friend posted it. Uh, think critically about other people in your community and how they might, um, I don't know, put themselves off in one way and then do the complete opposite. And 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 try to understand where they're coming from. Maybe it's there's not a lot. Maybe it's not all coming from malice or, or ignorance. Maybe it's just somebody slipped up one day. And so I think that's that's what we can all do in in late 2016 in in these times of where there's so much misinformation and there's so much negativity and there's so much calling out of each other that um, the best you can do is just seek truth first of all. And uh, and from that, then you know you you find yourself aligning with those who who would do the same, and and then other people would learn from that. Hopefully, mm. what advice has influenced you? Has there been a person or, or or a saying or something that somebody did that's kind of comes back to you over and over and gets you in line as artist? Mm, damn, that's a hard one. Um, I've had a lot of uh, I've had a lot of good mentors. I think, really, if you're a musician, you do have to practice as much as you can. Play your instrument eight hours a day if you can, and just really play. I mean, I, I can't remember if this was somebody I was close to or something I read somewhere in a magazine or something, but some musician said play with people who are better than you and that is really true like when you play with somebody who's much better than you and they they're willing to play with you do it uh, I know I, a lot of the kids I teach on the res are really shy you know and and uh, nobody's gonna do anything for you You have to do things yourself you all nobody's gonna invite you to go tour like I said you got to ask your grandpa your grandpa or your uncle or somebody <laughs> if you can borrow the truck and just go book a gig in Flagstaff or something and expect to play to three people and you just have to do it yourself you just have to do everything yourself nobody's gonna do anything for you and you can't be shy you have to you have to just do it hmm. um, what is your dream project if there were no restrictions on time or money what would you create uh, I would I would love to make a film uh, Post Commodity has some ideas for a film. There's also other collab, you know, some great native filmmakers out there that I'd love to collaborate with on something like that. Mm -hmm. um, if there was, and that's a very time-intensive, epic kind of project. But um, so if there was no time, that's the first one that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of albums I want to make in the next year, which I hope to find the time for. And um, 
and some people that I've been we've been talking about collaborating for a long time and and we're, I got to find the time we both have to, on both ends have to find the time to to do something so mm-hmm. um yeah we're all fighting time you know yeah it sounds like it's it's within reach though I mean I mean it sounds like it's not um a fantastic vision in the far future it sounds like something that is tangible for you yeah i hope so i think i think a lot of projects are are tangible and i think even thinking up impossible post commodity does a lot of thinking up of impossible projects and i've written some pieces that are impossible and and those are the best ones you know the the music that can can't ever be performed and um we're writing this piece right now for a building that's sinking into the ground and uh and sure enough, there's a building in San Francisco that's sinking into the ground. So we'll try to make music with that somehow. Wow. And that might be very impossible, but we're living in a reality where a skyscraper is sinking into San Francisco Bay. So <laughs> you'd be surprised. <laughs> it's real. All right. So the last, um, the last idea um, that I ask everybody is um, to present you with a, a soapbox moment. If you could say one thing to the world using this podcast as your platform, what would it be? Um, well, it, it's it's uh, coincidence, I suppose, that, we, that you and I, Ginger, are meeting one week uh, after Election Day. And uh, this past week, I'm sure a lot of people uh, felt very low, but I think every person uh, should seek out beauty in the world and find to find themselves surrounded in, in beauty. And that, that might be a very Navajo-centric kind of thing to say, but, but I think, you know, and indigenous people might understand this more than non-indigenous people, but, but uh, beauty is everywhere, and artists have an opportunity to, to fabricate beauty even, or at least to, to find it and present it in, in ways. So I think... I think um, and, and that beauty might even be dark. It might even be in a bad place or come from a, 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 a strange place or a place that you might not consider beautiful. But, but I think that's ultimately what our role as artists is to do, is, is to assemble or fabricate or uncover the beauty that exists. 